Coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, this is Radio Free Cannabis, voice of the global cannabis freedom movement. I'm your host, Steve D'Angelo. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Radio Free Cannabis, coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, supported by our worldwide network of activist correspondents, translated into 195 different languages. We are the voice of the global cannabis freedom movement, and I am your host, Steve D'Angelo. As our regular viewers and listeners know, Radio Free Cannabis is returning to the air after a brief break, and I'm delighted to be visiting with all of you again, continuing our work of understanding the amazing cannabis renaissance sweeping the entire planet. You'll notice some new graphic and audio upgrades, and we're happy to announce that you'll soon be able to find us on cable TV, on the Social Club TV network, and Green Rain Media. Please send us your questions, comments, critiques, or even rambling tirades. We read and value every one of them. And remember, support the companies that support this webcast, homegrownseedco.com, Liberty Clothing, and Swami Select. We'll get started today with our roundup of cannabis news headlines from around the globe. Then we'll lift your spirits with a few short prisoner release stories and march on to a couple of fascinating features, one from Japan and one from California's Emerald Triangle. Both stories have been filed by brand new correspondents making their debut appearances on Radio Free Cannabis, and you won't want to miss meeting them. Cannabis News, this episode, leans in a positive direction. There's been major movement in the Islamic world where Morocco and Pakistan have joined Lebanon in legalizing industrial and medical cannabis. Details on how these new legal industries will be regulated are still emerging. In Morocco, the cabinet and parliament still have to approve the legalization law, but given the king's apparent support for cannabis reform, these steps are expected to happen quite quickly. Pakistan is farther along in its development of the legal cannabis industry, with a recent announcement from Federal Minister for Science and Technology, Chaudhry Hussain, that the industrial hemp farms will be established in Jhelum, Peshawar, Chakwal, and Islamabad, and that Pakistan has issued its very first license for medical cannabis operations. Legal CBD medicines for the first time seem to be on the way for citizens of Cambodia, Afghanistan, Azerbaijan, Bangladesh, Georgia, the Maldives, Myanmar, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Vietnam. This comes with the announcement of a huge distribution deal by Crazo Pharma. This deal expands the global market for legal CBD products by 750 million people and carries cannabis medicine into many countries which otherwise remain staunchly prohibitionist. In Latin America, the Colombian government announced the new draft of legislation that will legalize the export of dried flowers and possibly packaged goods. However, at this point, the ultimate fate of the legislation seems uncertain, 
as it must still be signed by the president and be translated into implementing regulations to areas that have proven problematic in the past in Colombia. In Mexico, the slow motion stroll towards legalization seems to be picking up steam, aided in no small part by the fierce determination and imaginative tactics of the Mexican cannabis tribe. Latest word is that the lower house of Congress will vote to approve adult use cannabis in the very near future, and that in any case, full legalization is inevitable. Cannabis news coming out of Europe is mixed this week. On the positive side, France has identified the companies selected to provide medical cannabis to 3,000 French patients in that country's first pilot project to evaluate patient use of medical cannabis. It's a tiny first step, but given that France is perhaps the most fiercely prohibitionist country in the EU, it's a significant step. On the negative side, we continue to learn about the shortcomings of the UK's extremely restrictive medical cannabis program. Incredibly, the National Health Service has only supplied four patients with cannabis medicines nationwide. This is a shameful record because it means that millions of UK citizens who could benefit from cannabis therapeutics are still being denied access, still suffering when the medicine to help them is widely available, except of course, where it's been banned. In related news from Ireland, CBD only retailers are suffering a new round of raids from the Gardaí law enforcement agency, who apparently have chosen to ignore judicial rulings that CBD products are legal throughout the European Union. We see a similar mix of light and shadows, progress and intransigence, enlightenment and ignorance in the United States. In the state of Virginia, which was the government capital of the Confederate states that fought to preserve slavery in the United States, the legislature has taken the surprising step of legalizing adult-use cannabis, but inexplicably have decided to delay implementation of the law until 2024, which means that thousands more Virginians, disproportionately people of color, will be arrested for something that the legislature has already decided should not be illegal. In New Jersey, where voters have passed an adult use initiative, the state established a commission to study and recommend regulatory options and failed to include a single black man on the commission. This is in a state where black men are arrested for cannabis at several times the rate white people are. In the state that incarcerated and then allowed the murder of our brother Jawara Tosh, the son of one of our greatest prophets, Peter Tosh. And most recently, perhaps to get their last pound of flesh or maybe make their contempt for justice crystal clear, the New Jersey State Police targeted and arrested our brother Ed Forcian, who is more widely known by his nom de guerre, New Jersey Weed Man. He's the state's most visible cannabis activist. We're seeing similar kinds of nonsense in other states as Neanderthal politicians continue their doomed attempt to stop the progress of cannabis freedom. In South Dakota, the governor and a corrupt judge schemed together to invalidate an adult use initiative already approved by voters in the 2018 election. They based their nefarious 
anti-democratic efforts on the most absurd set of technicalities imaginable. And in Florida, the legislature is considering a limit of 10% THC content on medical cannabis products. This limit flies in the face of well-established science that demonstrates the therapeutic efficacy of cannabis is often dose-dependent. It also operates as an illegal tax on patients who are already doing their best to just survive. We'll be featuring a full feature report on the Florida situation in our next episode. Moving now on to some unreservedly joyous news. The first part of 2021 has seen the release of well over a dozen cannabis prisoners, some of whom have been serving life sentences. I was brought to tears and incredibly inspired more than once watching news coverage of their releases, so I'll share some of that with you now. Let's first check in with our brother Richard DeLisi. Richie was America's longest-serving nonviolent prisoner until his release earlier this year. I remember when he and his brother were busted way back in the late 80s. I was a young man. I was working the same underground trade routes they were working, but at a much smaller scale. The government imposed a 90-year sentence on Richard as an example to the rest of us. They thought they could crush our spirits and terrorize us into abandoning the plant. So I'm delighted to show you these clips of Richard's release far ahead of schedule. Despite their best efforts, the government has not broken our souls. We did not abandon the plant. And we are now here bringing our sisters and brothers back home. Delisi is 71 years old now. In 1989, he was sentenced to 90 years behind bars for drug trafficking. He has been locked up in Palm Beach County ever since, but his prison term was recently shortened. Now he's a free man. I feel um, quite wonderful. I have to thank God. I have to thank my family uh, and friends for riding for these uh, 32 years with me. I have to thank uh, FreeDelisi.com and also The Last Prisoners Project because if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be standing here talking to you right now. Thanks for that kind appreciation, Richie. It was our honor to be able to help. Now, let's check in on Corvain Cooper. Our brother Corvain was serving a life sentence for nonviolent cannabis offenses and was one of a dozen cannabis prisoners pardoned by the last president during his final days in office. Cooper arrived this morning at LAX after being released from a federal prison in Louisiana. He was one of more than a dozen people whose sentences were commuted by President Trump for crimes related to marijuana, which is now commercially legal in 15 states and legal for medicinal purposes in 34 states. Cooper talked about going home. I want to give all glory to God. I, just want to, I can't wait to see my kids. I haven't seen them in years. And it's just thank my attorney for really delivering on his word and never giving up on me and all the people that all the letters all the things all the activist groups there's too many lists of names i love last president project i love everybody we're going to do big things Britton k barnett alice thank you for walking it in it's just it's just too amazing it's a feeling that you it's better than the lottery the lottery can't touch this this is corvain cooper now free at home finally able to hug his 15 and 11 year old daughters a homecoming for a father 
trying to make up for what he missed with his daughters clear in Scotland. It's like to have my dad home, it's like a relief. Like it's like I was when he was in jail, it's like I was missing a part of him. It's like a piece of a piece of me is back. It was like memories lost. Like I would see my friends have their dad there and they would pick him up and I didn't have that memory with my dad. This is the real face of families torn apart by the war on cannabis. I think Clear and Scotland did a great job of communicating the pain of separation and the joy of reuniting that lies at the heart of this story. Finally, we're going to hear these moving words from Michael Thompson. He was Michigan's longest serving nonviolent prisoner before his release. I, I wasn't expecting all this, man. I would, no, this is, this is, this is. This is uh, this is beautiful, beautiful. I right, hope so somebody can hear me. You know, that's uh, dealing with the prison reform. Can hear me and let them know that there's a lot of things that need to be done. Cause uh, those those guys are, are human beings. And the way they're treating them is not good. So it's, so it's not just about me. It's about thousands of guys that, that need help. <laughs> and they need to quit talking. And start doing something. It's about guys that shouldn't be in there, like marijuana, still in there for marijuana. They shouldn't be in there. But just like I said, at one time I didn't, I didn't think I was gonna ever get out. It's just people like the ones I mentioned uh, really, really, really uh, kept me alive. And now I got that out the way. Now I'm, I just wanna let you know I'm happy. <laughs> yeah. Michael started advocating for his fellow prisoners in the very first minutes of his freedom. He hasn't stopped since, and I don't expect he ever will. This is a familiar pattern. Almost every released prisoner expresses the same feelings and the same determination. It makes me remember one of my very favorite quotes from the great Vietnamese revolutionary. Ho Chi Minh. When the prison doors open, the real dragons will fly out. We'll move on now to our first ever feature report from Japan by longtime cannabis activist and new radio free cannabis correspondent, Miki Nako. She's the co founder of Green Zone Japan, which was organized in 2017. Their mission is to bring accurate and up to date information about medical cannabis to Japanese doctors and the general public. We feel very fortunate to have this on the ground report from Japan, where cannabis stigma is so deeply entrenched that any association with the plant could destroy careers and family relations. Before we even think about the legal consequences, which Nako is going to brief us on now. As many of you probably know, cannabis is strictly prohibited in Japan except for a very small number of people who have official licenses. Its cultivation, distribution, and possession are not allowed for any purposes, 
including medical use or research. Possessions of cannabis, five grams or less, is punishable with up to five-year prison sentence. Worse, if you are arrested for cannabis possession, the social bashing is so severe that your career is practically over. The stigma associated with cannabis is far more intense than that in the United States. But it wasn't always like that. In fact, cannabis has a long history in Japan dating back to its prehistorical period. Fiber and seeds of hemp have been discovered in the remains of human habitats from the Jomon period, which spanned from around 10,000 BC to 300 BC. Throughout history, hemp was a widely cultivated crop and played a significant role in Japanese people's lives. People wore clothes made of hemp, used hemp ropes in a variety of ways, crafted hemp papers, ate seeds, and made oils. Hemp fields were abundant throughout the nation. Cannabis is deeply ingrained in our indigenous religion, Shintoism, to this day. Cannabis has been revered as a symbol of purity and prosperity. Shrines are adorned with a symbolic rope called shimenawa, made with cannabis fiber and used in various Shinto ceremonies. Grand champions of sumo wear it around their waist in a ceremony at the beginning of each day of the tournament. Cannabis was medicine as well. It was listed in the pharmacopoeia and prescribed to treat asthma, mitigate pain and enhance sleep among other uses. Cannabis tinctures and cigarettes were widely available in pharmacies and were advertised in newspapers. But then this rich culture was lost when we were defeated in World War II. Under the command of General MacArthur, the American Occupation Army ordered the Japanese government to ban cannabis. The Japanese government was dismayed as hemp at the time was one of the most important agricultural crops in Japan. Farmers protested and the Japanese government negotiated with the American government and the resulting law Cannabis Control Act was enacted in 1948. Today, we're still bound by this 73-year-old law. In fact, Japanese government is now trying to make it even more strict. The Japanese government intends to accomplish its goal of making prohibition even more draconian by adding cannabis use to its current prohibition on sales and possession so that prosecutors will be able to secure convictions on the mere presentation of a single positive urine test. To this end, the government has empowered a supposedly blue ribbon panel to study the proposed changes. This is a move completely against the global trend on drug policies, which is shifting from old draconian thinking to harm reduction. And this presents multiple issues. Firstly, the so-called Blue Ribbon Panel comprised 12 members of which eight are known to be anti-cannabis, making us wonder if the discussion may be based on preconceived conclusions. Secondly, there are people who, out of desperation, try cannabis therapeutics outside of Japan. 
If the usage of cannabis becomes a punishable crime and P-test is all what it takes to be prosecuted, people will grow afraid and access for medical cannabis for those who need it will be further diminished. And thirdly, this could have a negative repercussion on the growing Japanese market of hemp-derived CBD, which is the only available cannabis product in Japan at this time. This will not make anybody happy. To us cannabis activists, it looks as though the Japanese government is trying to protect somebody's interest or that they are deadly afraid of this unstoppable change of attitude toward cannabis that is happening around the world. The first meeting of this Blue Ribbon panel was held on January 20th, and we're waiting for the record of the discussion to be made public. According to media, they plan to hold a series of such meetings and compile a report by this summer. There's a campaign to collect signatures for a petition against this tightening of anti-cannabis law on change.org, started by five attorneys who are against this move. We shall be watching the development closely and we'll keep you posted. Thank you, Steve. This was Naoko from Greens on Japan. Thank you, Naoko. We wish all the best to you and all our cannabis sisters and brothers struggling to lift prohibition in Japan. And we salute you for having the courage to speak up in such challenging circumstances. Cannabis Tribe, can we start working on that change.org petition? Let's show the Japanese tribe some deep love. The last report of our episode today is a good news story from our dear friend Swami Chaitanya of the Emerald Triangle. He'll be teaching us about one of the most effective ways of protecting small cannabis farmers worldwide. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me on. This is Swami Chaitanya reporting from Northern California, Mendocino County in the heart of the Emerald Triangle. And today I'd like to have a positive news report really about Appalachians. Uh, Appalachians are something that we feel is very important for the small farmer, and it's an issue that actually is effective worldwide. So Appalachians, for those of you who might not be familiar with the term, are something that uh, originated in France way back in the 1400s and was the first applied to cheese. And the point was that if the king liked the cheese, he wanted to make sure that it was always the same cheese from the same place and it was the same quality. So we assigned an appellation to that Roquefort cheese because it came from a particular part of the country and in a cave. We want to do a similar thing for cannabis uh, all over the world, but we're starting up in, in Mendocino County and the legacy regions of the heritage cultivators who've been growing up here for 60 or 70 years. There are any, any number of other places in California that are legacy areas as well. And many of these areas have their own farmer organizations who have helped us create these regulations for the state of California through the Department of Agriculture. And we have a group called the Origins Council, which is organizing these separate uh, farmer representative groups. And we're petitioning the state to get uh, proper regulations for appellations. So the point is that when you have an appellation, that, which means literally the name of, and we say it's the name of the taste. It's the taste comes from that place. And that place we call, it has a common uh, name called terroir. 
and the terroir is a French word, which means the essence of the soil and the climate and the environment that you live in taken together with the expertise and skill and traditions of the, of the farmers who live there. So it's a cultural thing and it's an environmental thing. And what it does is it guarantees to the consumer that the product, it says it on the label, that's exactly the product that you're gonna get. It also guarantees for the farmer a better return because it does cost more for the farmer more time and effort and money to grow cannabis in this high level style. And so this will be protecting the farmer to get a better price for their cannabis. And similarly, what's going to happen is that the farmers of a particular area will come together, the farmers themselves, and they will make the standards, practices, and and define the cultivars that are particular to their region and that the farmers agree on, this is what we do, and in order to be included in our group, you have to do those things. So we're looking very forward to the final regulations coming down from the state of California, and we'll have those, uh, our own comments about those, and we'll then start to uh, petition the state from various cultivating regions in order for the state to grant us a, a, what they call an appellation of cannabis. An appellation is a designated uh, geographical designation, which protects the place and the farmers who grow it. And therefore, if you want to have Mendo cannabis, and you'll be guaranteed that it really is Mendo cannabis. So thank you very much, Steve. And that's what we're talking about these days and hope to see you again soon. Thank you, Swami. This is super important information for the global cannabis tribe. All around the world, the traditional cannabis cultivators who sustained us through the dark years of prohibition are being squeezed out of the industry by new corporate players. These new players bring in hundreds of millions of dollars from outside investors and use those resources to secure positions of power in the new legal industry. Meanwhile, the traditional producers, who are often indigenous peoples or other marginalized populations, people who have been systematically denied adequate resources for centuries, now find one of the last ways they have to feed their families under attack. Cannabis consumers have an important role to play in this movie. We can shape the future of the cannabis industry by voting with our dollars, by knowing the companies that we buy our cannabis from, by knowing what cultivation techniques they use, by knowing the diversity of their workforce and how it's treated, by understanding how the founders and owners are reinvesting or not in the community. Appalachians are one of the most powerful tools consumers have to ensure that the companies we buy from will reflect the value system that cannabis teaches us. Appalachians are mostly used by smaller farmers, always require the most environmentally sound agricultural practices, and preserve the richness of traditional cannabis culture. As we end this episode, I'd like to extend my thanks to all of our Radio Free Cannabis correspondents for their kind and courageous reporting, and to our audience for tuning in and taking the message seriously. I know that some of you listening find yourselves in challenging or even painful situations. You may be feeling rejection and disapproval from family members or employers, or an unfair sense of shame from religious authorities, or fear that your cannabis use will be made impossible, or that you might be arrested or imprisoned. Maybe you actually are in prison or headed there, or maybe you simply have no sacrament 
with which to connect to the infinite. Wherever you are, whatever situation you find yourself in, remember this. If you love cannabis, you will never be alone. There are hundreds of millions of us worldwide. Our tribe is as large as the largest of nations and perhaps even larger. We were born in the darkness, but we've seen the light and we're not going backwards. Change is coming. It's coming because we have embarked on our journey and we will not stop and we shall not rest until every single one of us is free. Know that you are not forgotten. Change is coming.